0: the lord's blessing upon this time our god and our father we have come to a sacred time the time where we open up your word which is the revelation of your person and your work your redemptive plan your loving design to save sinners like us from sin and death and hell through the life death and resurrection of your son This is sacred. And we approach it reverently, humbly, and confidently. Knowing that it's through the foolishness of preaching that you are well pleased to save those who believe. And we ask you to do it this morning. Would you call out of darkness and into light. Out of death and into life. Out of unbelief and into faith. And we approach this word confidently knowing that it is by the power of the word through the working of your spirit that you release slaves from the chains of the law and you set them free to a life of faith in the power of the spirit. Father, we're going to learn this morning about a heresy that was a cancer running through the churches of Galatia that runs through the churches of America. The heresy of a do more, try harder, be better Christianity. And I ask you now in the power of the Spirit for the glory of your Son, set us free. Set us free. As we sang just a moment ago, it is better to be here this one day than to be anywhere else the other six. And it is your word... And it is your spirit that makes it so. Come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Benjamin's fifth birthday is coming up in a couple of weeks. So it's time for us to begin thinking about presents. This past Christmas, as his mom and I were walking through the aisles of Toys R Us, we we came across a five-year-old's dream. It was a remote-controlled robot. Don't get any ideas. Now, my son Benjamin is fascinated by robots, and this gift would be right up his alley. And if we were to get it for him, I want you to imagine two very different scenarios on the morning of April the 8th. Okay, in scenario number one, Benjamin unwraps his three-foot-tall silver and gray robot, and he, he eagerly takes it out of its package, and with unbridled and euphoric glee, he plays with it for hours. The robot walking here and there out of the kitchen and through the bedrooms and down the hall as I sit on the couch in the middle of it all and bask in my self-appointed father of the year title. Scenario number one. Scenario number two. Benjamin unwraps the robot, he takes it out of its package, and he he eagerly, with great anticipation, pushes the forward button on the remote, and nothing happens. The robot just stands there, motionless, lifeless, and dead. And with disappointment on his face, Benjamin looks over at me and asks, what's wrong? Why won't it work? And my eyes fall upon the packaging, and I read those three little words that I had failed to notice when I bought it at the store. Batteries not included. Now, I immediately launch, as any good father would do, into a frantic search for such batteries. But I find that it takes C, and I only have D. Or inevitably, it takes four, and I only have three. Well, Benjamin tries to move the arms and, and, and the legs manually, but soon he gives up in disillusionment as the toy turns out to be not at all what he had hoped and not at all what he had expected. It's not much fun playing with a dead toy that is supposed to be alive. Were there, were there ever three words that were more detrimental to the happiness of a five-year-old child than batteries not included? Those three words and the reality which they represent render the gift great though it may have been useless, inanimate, dead, worthless. See, unless the gift comes with the power to bring it to life, then one must ask, what's the point? And that's Paul's point in Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Where we finally come face to face with the Galatian heresy. The false teaching that was spreading like a cancer through the churches of Galatia. And was threatening to kill the work of the gospel that was but a few months old. The heresy is spelled out for us I believe in verse 3 of chapter 3. Where Paul asks this question. Are you so foolish? Foolish. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Basically, the Galatian heresy taught that the gift of salvation did not come with batteries included. That God had purchased for us the gift of redemption, but now it was up to us to supply the power to put that gift to work, to bring it to life. In other words, these false teachers were teaching that though your initial justification was by grace through faith in order to be finally justified before God, you needed to buckle down and get to work. You needed to be circumcised and keep the law. What was begun in the power of the Spirit needed to be perfected or completed in the power of the flesh. You've got to finish what God has started. That's the essence of the Galatian heresy. And Paul minces no words. I wonder if it startled a few of you when I began reading Galatians 3.1. He calls this teaching foolishness and witchcraft. See, the gift of God, beloved, is not incomplete. The salvation of God comes with batteries included. What God began by the Spirit in our justification, He will complete by the Spirit in our sanctification. The power to save and the power to sanctify are one and the same. The Spirit of God working through faith. And if... We try to install batteries of our own making into the gift of justification. You will ruin the gift. And you will render it useless, lifeless, dead, and vain. Don't forget the context that we've been covering over the last five or six weeks. The context in which Galatians 3 resides. The heresy that Paul is describing, he has already called in Galatians 1, 6, a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And he has already said that those who fall prey to its seduction are accursed of God. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. And he's going to say that we've already covered it a little bit when we were in Galatians one in chapter five and verse four, that those who continue down that path, they are severed from Christ and they have fallen from grace. In other words, how you live the Christian life is as important as how you begin the Christian life, because the Christian life is begun and it is lived in exactly the same way by grace Through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this is a message today for church folk. It's a message for you and it's a message for me. People like us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a call to examine ourselves. Not to examine our past. That is our conversion. But to examine our present. That is our sanctification. In other words, the question that is posed by this text, the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning is not primarily, have I come to Christ by faith, but rather do I live day by day by faith? Or to pose the question in in terms of the metaphor that I began with, do I rely upon God for the gift alone or do I rely upon God for the gift and for the batteries to bring it to life and to make it work? And Paul's going to say, unless you receive the gift and the batteries, it's all vain. Paul is writing to Galatian congregations that are filled with people just like us, church folks. And he tells them that Not only Christian conversion, but the whole of the Christian life is all of grace. It's all of faith. It's all of the Spirit. It's not a life of striving. Of merit. Of works. Of law. Of human effort. Do you you hear Paul describing the Christian life in those terms? It's not, well... We are saved by grace through faith, but now it's time to get to work, to put your hand to the plow and your nose to the grindstone and pull up yourself by your own bootstraps. That's not what it is. We don't enter through the gates of free grace only then to embark upon a life of slavery to the law. We don't enter through the gates of believe, come, rest, receive Rely upon the saving work of Christ and His blood alone and His righteousness alone. Just rest. Only to then walk through this life under the banner of do more, try harder, be better. That's not it. We are not justified by grace through faith in the works of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, only to then sanctify ourselves by trying really hard to fulfill the works of the law. No, the gospel is for church people. Just as much as it is for the unchurched. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. One of the verses that sparked the Reformation. He says this, For in it, that is in the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is from first to last. As it is written, listen to me, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, the justified, those who have been called into the kingdom and have been justified by grace through faith in the shed blood of Christ. They don't then live by works, they live by what? Faith. Are you the righteous by faith in Christ? Then you live by faith. In the same way that you begun, so you are to walk. So what I want to do this morning, by God's grace, I want to free us from the Galatian heresy. Because I suspect that in our congregation, as in many congregations, I suspect in your hearts, as I have found in my own heart, That the vestiges of these chains, they're just creeping in and wanting to enslave us again. I'm convinced that the majority of us live life by this principle. That though we were once saved by faith, we live by works. And consequently, we go through this life trying to do what God commands us to do in the power of the flesh. And we're miserable failures at it. We're not experiencing victory over sin. We keep falling in the same way day after day, month after month, year after year. There's no victory. There's no death to sin. We're not experiencing the joy of Christ because whenever we obey, it's not out of joy and love and faith and obedience. It's out of because I have to because God told me that I had to try harder and do more and be better or else he wouldn't like me anymore. Consequently, people are not exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. You look at congregations and you don't see them marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and righteousness and self-control. Do you know what Paul would say if he were writing the First Baptist Church of Nixa today in the 21st century? I don't think we have to guess. You know where I'm going? You foolish Nixons! Nixians? Nixonians? Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? It is foolishness, beloved. It is foolishness to think that the flesh can produce righteousness and it is witchcraft to think that the cross of Christ and the spirit of God are insufficient both to justify and to sanctify all those who come to Christ by faith. So in order to stem the tide of foolishness and to break the spell of works, Paul sets forth three arguments, three evidences that salvation is by faith from first to last. Three proves that we are justified and sanctified in the very same way. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the power of the Holy Spirit alone. And I want to walk through those three with you. Evidence number one that Paul gives is actually found for us in verse one. Where Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, Paul is referring here to his own preaching of the cross when he came to Galatia on that first missionary journey, when he planted the Galatian churches on the foundation of the gospel. The word that my Bible translates as publicly portrayed literally means to publicly display on a placard or on a billboard. Isn't that a great way to describe preaching? Oh God, I I hope that my preaching publicly displays the cross as if you can see it up on a billboard like on campbell where we have that that billboard that says get connected to first baptist church that when you actually come into first baptist church and you sit here week after week it's like seeing christ crucified on the billboard paul says that's what happened when i came to galatia and you saw it It was if the image of the crucified Christ were displayed before you in all of its agony and all of its glory. What's Paul's point? Well, evidently, Paul considered the cross to be sufficient evidence that for those who had seen it through the hearing of faith, they had seen Jesus crucified, that for them to then go and think that they could be perfected by the flesh, by the works of of the law, they must either be fools or else they're under some kind of spell. It was inconceivable to Paul that they would see Christ crucified and then think that they had to go it on their own. So the question I asked is why? What is it about the cross that proves Paul's point that nobody can be justified or sanctified by the flesh? The answer is that in Paul's mind, the very reason that Christ died is because your flesh and my flesh are incapable of producing the kind of righteousness that God requires. To Paul, the cross is the supreme evidence of the futility of human righteousness and the hopelessness of human works. If our flesh were capable of producing righteousness of any kind, we wouldn't need the cross We'd need a life coach. We we would need somebody to come alongside us and to encourage us to do more and to urge us to try harder and to tell us, you can do better. We would need somebody to tell us, just think positive thoughts and speak positive words and, and you can produce your best life now. That's what we would need. You know what we wouldn't need? We wouldn't need a crucified Savior if our flesh could produce righteousness, we wouldn't need a Christ hung upon the cross. I want you to turn with me back to Romans. I want to show you what I mean by by a section in which Paul really fleshes out what he's saying here in Galatians 3. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. And I want you to focus in on verse 18. This verse occurs in the middle of a section which is all about the inability of our flesh. Can't do it. And in the middle of this section, Paul makes this stunning declaration. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Let's do a little logic here exercise in thinking. If the Apostle Paul says, you know what? There's nothing good in here. I want to do good, but I can't. If the Apostle Paul, who had seen a vision in which the crucified and risen Lord Jesus appears to him and appoints him as the apostle to the, to the Gentiles and gives him a gospel by the word of his very own mouth. If Paul says, Paul, who, who preaches, and, and yes, I know, he put somebody to sleep, and that person who fell out of sleep fell out of the window and died. But listen, if you're going to put people to sleep, at least wake them back up by the power of a resurrection. If the Apostle Paul, who is able to cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, by speaking words, and they flee from him. If he says, nothing good is in here. It's not that the willing isn't present. Yeah, I want to be good, but I can't. What does that say about us? Nothing. Nothing good dwells in us. You want to do good? I hope or else you're not born again. But you can't do good. So what are we going to do? Well, look at Romans 8 and verse 3. You'll see the answer. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. I want you to look. As an offering for sin. There's the cross. Who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the what? The Spirit. What is God's answer for an, a flesh that is completely unable to do what the Spirit desires? The cross and the Spirit of God. The cross is God's declaration that you can do nothing but Christ has done everything. What the law could not do because it was through the flesh, God did. The cross is God's declaration that you couldn't do it. So he did it for you. You needed atonement for your sins. You could not atone for your sins because you were in fact a sinner. But Jesus atoned for your sins. And all you have to do is receive the atonement that he accomplished by faith and by faith alone. You need righteousness if you're going to stand in the side of a just and holy God. The problem is is that you're unrighteous. You can't. You can't produce it. Jesus Christ perfected righteousness at the cross and all you have to do is to receive it by faith when he freely offers it to you. You need to be sanctified because without holiness no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12:14. You can't produce holiness. Jesus Christ died upon the cross, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven and sent forth his spirit into your hearts in order to sanctify you, to transform you into the image of Christ so that you could be received into his presence, blameless with great joy. You have only to walk in the spirit by what? Faith. The cross is the irrefutable evidence in Paul's mind and in our minds. That salvation is by faith from first to last. Second evidence is found in verse 2. Paul says, this is the only thing that I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Or literally the hearing of faith. Paul points the Galatians back to the occasion of their conversion. And he asks them this very simple question. So, do you remember when I came to your town? It was about six months ago, and I preached the gospel, and Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed before your eyes. You remember that? Did I tell you be circumcised, and then you'll receive the Spirit? Did I tell you keep the law, and then you'll be saved? No. I didn't tell you to do anything in order to receive the Spirit. You simply listened to the Gospel and suddenly faith was born in your heart. The Spirit came through the preaching of Christ, drew back the veil that was over your eyes, drove out the darkness that clouded your mind, created faith, within your heart and took up residence in your soul. You did not work for the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God worked on you through the preaching of Christ. Beloved, I want you to know that your conversion happened in exactly the same way. Because anyone who is converted is converted in the same way through the preaching of Christ, through the effectual work of the Spirit and not by the works of the law. And it's evidence that salvation then is by grace from first to last. You didn't contribute anything. Nothing. No works, no effort, no striving, nothing of the flesh. You were as helpless to save yourself as a blind man is to make himself see. As a deaf man is to make himself hear. As a dead man is to bring himself to life. That's how much you can contribute to your salvation. But Christ was preached. And the Spirit was sent forth to awaken you from death to life and to create within your heart saving faith. And suddenly, without you even being aware of the sovereign work of the Spirit of God, you heard and you believed and you called upon Christ in faith. You did not decide to receive the Spirit. You did not plan To receive the spirit you did not obligate God to send you the spirit through any work that you had done at all. The gift of the spirit is free and it is sovereign and it is gracious and it is not connected with the law but with the hearing of faith. And if this is the way that the Christian life is begun does it not stand to reason Paul is telling us that this is the way that the Christian life would be lived and would be completed. It's exactly where he goes in the next verse. In verse 3. Are you so foolish? So having begun by the spirit. And not by the works of the law. Are you then going to be completed by the flesh? By effort? By striving? By trying harder and doing more and being better? Grace. Faith. And the sovereign work of the spirit. That's how sinners are saved. Grace. Grace. Faith and the sovereign work of the Spirit, that's how sinners are sanctified. Both conversion and sanctification are by the power of the Spirit through faith in Christ, who is both the author and the finisher of salvation. Third evidence. Verse 5. We'll skip verse 4 and come back to it. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? So in this last evidence, Paul's going to point them to the ongoing work of the Spirit. Among the Galatian churches. And he's going to ask them, is this ongoing work of the Spirit manifested in miraculous works? Is that the result of the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You know, often when the gospel penetrates a dark and unreached culture, like first century Galatia, God demonstrates his power and testifies to the authority of the word and the veracity of the word and the authority of the messengers of the gospel by pouring out his spirit in visible demonstrations of the spirit's power. It happened in Acts chapter 14. You can see it. Paul's point is that such miraculous signs and wonders were not the result of the people's obedience or the people's righteousness or the people's efforts. They were simply the free and sovereign gift of God administered through faith in the promises of the gospel. There's an incredible verse in Acts 14, verse 9, when Paul is in Lystra, I believe it is, and he's preaching and he looks at a man who is lame in the congregation and it says, and he saw that he had faith to be made well. And he told him, get up and walk. And the man got up and he walked. Now question, Paul says, do you remember when that happened? Well, yes, we remember the guy's still walking around today. Did he do anything? Well, no. He just sat, and he just listened, and he believed. And the Spirit worked a miracle in him. Now, it's not my purpose to delve into the issue of signs and wonders this morning, but let me simply mention that if God chooses to perform miracles in our midst by the power of the Spirit, it will not be as a reward for our works or as a reward for our, reward for our efforts or a reward for our obedience. It will be as a reward for our faith. As we hear preached of a God who is sovereign and able to do whatsoever He wills, and we believe that he is sovereign and able to do whatsoever he wills. Miracles, just like conversion, are a gift of the Spirit received through faith in the word of the gospel. Do You see how Paul is stringing his argument together? Finally, I want you to see that he issues a warning to the Galatians. It's implicit, it's implied in this text. And it is found in verse 4 where Paul says this. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? The gospel brings suffering because the cross is not popular. When Paul came to Lystra in Galatia, proclaiming the gospel, he was stoned by the Jews. He was dragged out of the city and he was left for dead. And evidently, according to what Paul says here in Galatians 3, 4, The Christians that he left behind in Galatia had suffered similar things, similar persecutions for the sake of the gospel. But notice that Paul is concerned that those sufferings may have been in vain. Don't miss the underlying warning here. Paul is telling them that if you turn away from the gospel, then everything will have been in vain. My preaching. Your faith, your suffering, everything. If in an attempt to avoid the persecution of the Jews who hated the word of the cross, who hated the gospel that was by faith apart from the works of the law, and if they, in an effort to Avoid this persecution. They submitted to circumcision and they came underneath the bondage of the law. Paul is going to tell them in Galatians 5 and verse 4. You will be cut off from Christ. You will have fallen from grace. Why? Because in receiving circumcision they would be saying with their actions if not with their lips. The cross of Christ is not sufficient to save. And the righteousness of Christ is not sufficient to justify. Thus they will have turned away from the justification that is by faith alone. And they will have turned towards the justification that is by the law. And in Galatians 5.4 we will get there in just a few weeks. Paul says that there is no hope in the way of works. And those who seek justification through the law have fallen from grace. Now, I'm not going to explain how Galatians 5.4 fits in with the doctrine of eternal security this morning. I'll deal with that when we get to chapter 5. This morning, I just want Paul's warning to hit us with the full force with which it was intended. So that we will know that this is not a question of minor relevance. This is not a sermon that I can yawn through and then go watch March Madness and forget. Let me be crystal clear. If any of you turns away from the gospel of grace. The gospel of faith. The gospel of Christ. The gospel of the spirit. And instead tries to be perfected. That is to complete your salvation by the works of the flesh. By the works of the law. Hear me. You will not be saved. You will have begun. At least visibly the Christian life, in vain. So don't turn away. Do not turn away from grace, faith, Christ, the Spirit. Do not turn away from the alones of the gospel and begin adding your own merit and your own works and your own righteousness and your own efforts and your own striving. Keep walking by grace, through faith, in Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And you will not fall prey to the heresy that was infecting the churches of Galatia. I want to conclude this morning by asking a simple question how what is the opposite of the Galatian heresy? What is the opposite of galatians three three trying to complete by the flesh what God has begun by by grace, trying to finish By works, what God has begun in the power of the Spirit. The opposite is Galatians 2.20. Look up there with me. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by, say it with me, faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself up for me. The opposite of the life of law is a life of grace. The opposite of the life of works is the life of faith, and the life of or the opposite of the life of striving in the power of the flesh is walking in the power of the spirit. Paul is setting up an opposition here that cannot possibly be blurred. So the question is how what does it look like to walk in this radically different way of life? What does it mean to live by grace through faith in the power of the spirit? And I'm going to confess to you this morning that I'm only beginning to learn how to do this. I in my studying in Galatians three over the past couple of months, and especially as I've begun looking ahead to three and four and five, I've become convinced that whatever progress I've made in sanctification has been in spite of my efforts, not because of them. It's as if I've been working against the power of the Spirit and trying to perfect myself in the power of the flesh. I've all too often approached the Christian life as if it were a life lived by law through works in the power of the flesh rather than by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit. Therefore, let me tell you how this looks, at least how it looks in my life. Therefore, whenever I'm confronted by a command of Scripture, thus saith the Lord. All right, I know, Tim, I've got to do this or I've got to stop doing this. I either fail to obey that command or else I force myself to trudge through the motions of a joyless obedience. Either way, it's not what Paul has in mind. But about a month ago, While trying to understand the message of Galatians, I listened to a sermon by John Piper that has begun to have a major impact upon the way that I live. It's a way of being intentional about living by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit. So in the time that remains for us this morning, I want to walk through a new paradigm of living for you. And I hope that you will recognize how radically different it is from the way many of us approach the Christian life. As you start your day, during your morning devotions, your morning prayer time, or, and, whenever you are confronted by a situation requiring your obedience to a clear command of Scripture, and you find yourself crying out with the Apostle Paul, the willing Is present in me. But the doing of good is not. When you come across one of those crises. One of those situations. For instance. Someone has so wronged you. That it's cut you so deep. And you come across Ephesians 4.32. That tells you. Beloved you've got to forgive. Just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And everything in your flesh is crying out for vengeance. I just want to see them get their just reward. I want to see them hurt because of the way that they hurt me. And you know deep within yourself, I need to forgive. Furthermore, I want to forgive, but I can't forgive. What are you going to do? Or you find yourself in one of those crazy cycles. Like we talked about at the marriage conference. Where the husband and the wife are responding to one another by withholding love and withholding respect. And acting in anger and acting in frustration. And it's just spinning in the wrong direction like a merry-go-round. And you know, husbands... That God has called you to love your wife just as God in Christ Jesus has loved his church. Just as Jesus has loved his bride. That is, when his bride did not love him in return. And you know it, and you want it, but you can't do it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? When you know that God is calling you to turn away from an immoral relationship. When you know that God is calling you to turn away from a sensual image on a computer screen. And everything in your flesh is crying out for indulgence. But you know, I want purity. But I can't produce it. What are you going to do? I want you to follow this paradigm that is provided for you on the bottom of the back side of your bulletin. It follows a little acronym that doesn't spell anything. This comes from John Piper, so it's his fault. It's APTAT, A-P-T-A-T, and I want to walk through that with you, and I commend it to you as a way to intentionally walk by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit. As it says in Galatians 5, so that you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. A stands for acknowledge. You need to acknowledge what Jesus says about you. Would be a good idea, would it not? That apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. You need to acknowledge that the power to do good is not resident within your flesh. As Paul says in Romans 7, 18. In other words, if righteousness is to be rendered, if obedience is to result, it's not going to come from the flesh. It's got to come from the Spirit. Beloved, God has called you to live a life of faith, and a life of faith is a life of utter dependency upon the grace of God and the power of His Spirit. So you've got to start there. Acknowledge that you're helpless. And believe that God desires to help the helpless. Number two, you need to pray. You need to pray that God would bear in you the fruit of righteousness by his spirit. So you need love, right? And not the kind of love for those who already love you. Jesus says, what credit is that? You love those who love you. Even the pagans do that. No, you've got to love your enemies, You've got to love your wife that is not loving you in return. You've got to love your husband that re- withholds from you all of the intimacy that you desire. You've got to love the coworker that grates on your last nerve. How are you going to do that? Well, you could pray, as Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, that God would, don't be afraid of this language, rejoice in the helplessness of the flesh and the power of the spirit. Pray that God would cause you to increase and abound in love. Pray, Hebrews 13, 21, that God would equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. In other words, you're going to pray that God would do for you and in you and through you what you absolutely cannot do by yourself. Number three, you trust. You trust the promise of God that the Spirit works not by the law but through faith. Isn't that what he said in Galatians 3.3? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? No. You're perfected in the same way that you began. That is by the hearing of faith. Or Galatians 5.5 5 if you're there. Where Paul says this: "For we, through the Spirit, by say it with me, faith. Let's try that again. Galatians five five. We're not leaving this morning till you get it. Twelve fifteen tip off time. <clears throat> For we, through the Spirit, by what faith." are waiting for the hope of righteousness. God gives his spirit through faith. You could trust the promise of Luke 11:13 where God says or Jesus says that even earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. So certainly then your heavenly father will give the holy spirit to those who ask him. Isn't that encouraging? You could trust 1 John 5, 14 and 15, which says that God hears and answers every prayer that is prayed in accordance with his will. God will never deny the prayer of his child who asks in faith for the power to do what he commands. Never. Alright, so having acknowledged that in my flesh I can't do it, apart from the power of Christ given by the spirit i can do nothing and having prayed and asked god to do in me and for me and through me what i can't do for myself to cause me to abound in love to perform his will and trusting in the promise that god has heard my prayer and he will answer with the power of his spirit number four i act in other words i don't just sit and wait to be overwhelmed by a feeling of filling. Feeling of filling. I, I feel that I'm filled by the Spirit right now. No. We don't live by feelings, we live by faith. I've already asked God to do what He promises that He'll do, therefore, I can take it to the bank that He has, in fact, done it. And now I act. I act in obedience to God's word. And acting in obedience, trusting that God has heard and answered my prayer for power. And listen, I want you to recognize that this kind of acting is totally different from the acting in the power of the flesh. Do you see it? When I come to God in utter helplessness and dependence, when I pray for and trust in his supply of divine power... Then my obedience is not the work of the flesh. But rather is the fruit of the spirit. And to him belongs all the glory. Which leads me to number five. Having come through on the other side. Having extended love to my spouse. Having extended forgiveness to that one who had wronged me. Having turned away from immorality. Having fled from immorality. I thank God. For causing me to will and to work for his good pleasure. I thank him for granting me the grace and the will and the power to do by his spirit what I could not do by the flesh. And when your obedience is the joyful fruit of the Spirit, rather than the begrudging work of the flesh, all praise and glory and honor belongs to God, because it was His strength at work within me. 1 Peter 4.11 To will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.12 Aptat Ask, pray, trust, act, think. Thank. I've only scratched the surface of what it means to be crucified and raised with Christ such that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me by his spirit. I've only tasted what it means to walk by faith and not to live by the works of the flesh. Living by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But I know this. To Paul, walking by faith was the sum and substance of the Christian life. So I'm determined to dig down deep and to know more. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the power of the Spirit alone. Beloved, that's Christianity. And when we do that, when we walk By grace, through faith, and the power of the Spirit. Trusting God, not only for the gift of salvation, but for the batteries, for the power to put it to work. When we reach the end of the race, and we hear the voice of our King saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. We will know that it was not by our own strength and not by our own power, but rather the same God who began in me a good work has brought it to completion. And we will say before our King the same words of the Apostle Paul, that it is by the grace of God that I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God at work within me. And we will take the praise of Jesus like a crown on our head, and we will Lay it at his feet because it's he who chose us and called us and saved us and sanctifies us and will glorify us and Jesus will be praised. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, this is new. This is new to me. And I suspect that it's new to many others not that they've never heard it before not that your spirit does not reside within them but that there is a way to intentionally walk by the spirit so as not to des- fulfill the desires of the flesh that we have a way of intentionally tapping into the power that that you have given us to put sin to death And to live for righteousness. And so as we close this morning. I pray that by the power of your spirit. They they can't do anything. We can't do anything. To obligate you to send us your spirit. We just hear. And we believe. And so I pray that through the preaching of the word this morning. That there may be some who haven't yet begun by the spirit. I pray that you would grant them the spirit, that you would, you would send your spirit through the preaching of Christ, that they would know that, that they're sinners and that Christ died for sinners like them, making full atonement for their sins, and that he rose again for their justification. And I pray that you would call them out of death and into life, that they would place all of their faith and all of their trust and rely solely upon your grace and, the, and by faith in the work of Christ. Would you do that for them? Grant them the hearing of faith, that they may receive the spirit. And then for those of us who have been walking through this life and we'd have to say, I'm not walking in victory and I'm not walking in joy and I'm not walking in love and patience and peace and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. I pray that you would commend to them by your spirit, take it, burn it deep, seal it. That they would approach every day, every morning, every temptation acknowledging that in themselves they are incapable of rendering obedience. That they would pray that you would do for them and in them what they cannot do for themselves. That they would trust in your promise that you hear and answer every prayer of your child that is in accordance with your will. That you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you. That they would act in obedience to the revealed will of God found in the scriptures. Not in the power of the flesh but now in the power of the spirit by faith. And that we would be a people who come in on a Sunday morning. And we render all praise and glory and honor to you for the way that you have carried us. By the wind of your spirit through a week of rough seas. And that we would find rest in the worship and the adoration of our God who completes what he starts who gives the batteries, supplying the power to put the gift to work. Do your work in us. We ask this by Jesus' name.